Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. another episode of the true crime truckers podcast on this episode once again i'm joined by my wife amanda gale hello and on this episode we're gonna do a little bit of a departure from normal episodes this isn't an abduction and this isn't a murder we're gonna talk about the case of dan cooper more commonly referred to as D.B. Cooper, which is false, but we'll get into that later. Are you familiar with the case? Somewhat, yes. Okay. So, on Thanksgiving Eve of November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black attache case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305, a 30-minute trip north to Seattle. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727-100, and took seat 18C in the rear of the passenger cabin. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink, a bourbon and soda, while the flight was waiting to take off. This was back in the day when you could order drinks no matter what part of the plane you were in, and they were complimentary. People dressed up because going on a flight was like a big, big deal. thing. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So, I always drink on flights, uh, so... We have that in common. I do too, but you gotta pay like $15 for a beer, you know? So, Flight 305, approximately one-third full, which never happens anymore. When have you ever seen a plane that was only a third full? Yeah. So, it departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed the note to Florence Schaffner the flight attendant, situated nearest to him in a jump seat 
attached to the aft stair door. Schaffner, assuming the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number, dropped it unopened into her purse. Cooper leaned towards her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt-tipped pen. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it, but Schaffner recalled that the note said that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase. After Schaffner read the note, Cooper told her to sit beside him. Schaffner did as requested, then quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands, $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserves, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. So she physically saw the bomb. He opened the attache case. Which every time that I hear about it where she says that she saw, you know, like eight red sticks and the wiring and stuff like that, I think of Tommy Boy, and maybe it was just road flares and some wiring. (laughs) Richard, I have an idea. (laughs) Richard? Is this your coat? (laughs) Don't do it. Fat guy in a little coat. Fat guy in a little coat. Don't. (laughs) Fat guy in a little coat. Fat guy in a little coat. Take it off, dickhead. I'm serious. Richard, what's happening? Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. And when she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The pilot, William Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control which in turn informed the local and federal authorities. The 36 other passengers were given false information that the arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of minor mechanical difficulties. Only 36 people on this flight. Yeah, right. But it was also only a 30-minute flight. And the plane was only a third full. Yeah. Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrop, authorized payment of the ransom, and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point he remarked, Looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Uh, Schaffner described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken. Not at all consistent with the stereotypes, enraged, hardened criminals, or the take-me-to-Cuba political dissidents popularly associated with air piracy at the time. So he was calm, collected, very polite to the flight attendants. Mucklow stated he wasn't nervous. She told investigators he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, 
paid his drink tab and attempted to give Mucklow the change and offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. And apparently, like, while he drank his bourbons and sodas, which a man after my own heart, whiskey and soda. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, he chain-smoked cigarettes the whole, like, flight. Because that was back when you could smoke on planes. Yeah, well, yeah. You know. Uh, FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle-area banks. 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most from the 1963A or 1969 series, and they made a microfilm photograph of each of the bills. So in the time that they they were... they couldn't write all the serial numbers down in right. time, so they just took pictures and put it on microfilm of every wow. single bill so they had the serial numbers. And I looked it up, and apparently $200,000 back in 1971 is uh, the equivalent of $1.26 million today. I'd be happy with $200,000 today. Yeah, but, I mean, still, that's... Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Cooper rejected the military-issued parachutes offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel, instead demanding civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. Mm -hmm. At 5.24 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and at 5.39 p.m. the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It was more than an hour after sunset, and Cooper instructed Scott to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close each window shade in the cabin to deter police snipers. Northwest Orient Seattle Operations Manager Al Lee approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer. He delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklow via the aft stairs. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper ordered all passengers, Schaffner, and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew, a southeast course towards Mexico City, at a minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft approximately 100 knots or 150 miles per hour, at a maximum of 10,000 feet. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff and landing position, the wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. So this dude knew about planes. Yeah, for sure. Like, he knew what degree the flaps needed to be. He knew... Yeah. You know, altitude and wind speed. Co-pilot William Ratzik informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as the refueling stop. With the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off. Northwest Home Office objected on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aft staircase deployed. Uh, Cooper countered that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He would lower it once they were airborne. Okay. So, right. by saying aft stairs for 
people that might be wondering, the old school 727s had a stair out of the back of it. So basically, like, they would, that was how they would, like, bring meals and stuff on the plane. Now they right. use, like, the elevator system and stuff, where right. they just, like, elevate it right. up into the, but they had, like, basically, like, a cargo plane's rear door, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it had stairs right. and stuff, and that was how they would bring, like, all the stuff into the plane. Right. So it wasn't used for, like, um passengers to get off and on that was basically right. just for crew right. and maintenance the faa officially requested a face-to-face -face meeting with cooper aboard the aircraft which was denied and once refueling had been completed the plane was able to take off this was from right now no this was still from, oh, this seattle. Was still from seattle he okay. had um they had said that like with his requirements for how he wanted the plane to be flown there was only a range of a thousand miles, so to get to Mexico right. City, they would right. have to stop and refuel right. again. Okay, I and they you. they agreed on Reno. Okay, before they left Seattle, there was nobody saw Dan Cooper, but the people that were on the plane when they stopped in Seattle and stuff. That nobody from the ground in Seattle ever viewed Dan Cooper. Right. At approximately 7.40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with only five people on board. Cooper, Pilot Scott, Flight Attendant Mucklow, Co-Pilot Ratzik, and Flight Engineer H.E. Anderson. Two F-106 fighter aircrafts were scrambled from McCord Air Force Base and followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. A Lockheed T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission also shadowed the 727 before running low on fuel and turning back nearer the Oregon-California state line. Overall, there were five planes in total trailing the hijacked plane. None of the pilots saw him jump or could pinpoint a location where he could have landed. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. As she complied, Mucklow observed Cooper tying something around his waist. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the aft air stairs apparatus had been activated, so the stairs were lowered. The crew's offer of assistance via the aircraft's intercom system was curtly refused. The crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure indicating that the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to a level flight. At approximately 10.15, the aircraft's aft air stair was still deployed when Scott and Ratzik landed the 727 at the Reno airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet as it had not yet been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard, but an armed search quickly confirmed his absence. So when they felt the subsequent pressure change and then the movement that made them have to trim the plane to get it back to level at 8.13, he jumped. <laughs> Thank you.
Now, where he jumped was in between Seattle and, uh, I want to say they said Seattle and, like, Portland. So, it's somewhere in between there. So, the area is the Pacific Northwest. Right. Which is a rainforest. It's all dense. Right. So, he jumped from the plane in late November. It was raining the night. Shocker. In a business suit and dress shoes in a, with a parachute. Yep. Jumped out of a 727 at 10,000 feet. Yep. Gone. Yep. And none of the other airplanes pilots saw him. No, because it was dark and it was raining. FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. Uh, the agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened, and two shroud lines cut from the canopy. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, all who personally interacted with Cooper, and a series of composite sketches was developed. They found 66 prints that they couldn't match up with anybody that was on the plane. Right. The one that they're pretty positive was Dan Cooper's, was on the aft staircase railing. They found a fingerprint. Right. And they think that, like, he held on to it to steady himself as he went off the back of the plane, and they're pretty sure that that set of fingerprints is, is actually yeah. his. Yeah, right. And the, the shroud cords and stuff they theorize he used to tie the money to himself. That, like, he took the bags that the money came, and he took right. the parachute cord, because it would be nylon. Right. And very strong, and he tied the right. money to himself. Right. Which I should have looked up and seen how much 200000 in $20 bills would weigh. Yeah. Because it's 10,000 bills, right? Yeah. That's $20. I wonder how much that weighs. Yeah, probably a good little amount. Probably quite a bit. Cooper failed to specify the denomination of the ransom money. And the $200,000 is made up of $20 bills. It weighs 23 pounds. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects, and among them considered more than 800 people. Of these, all but two dozen were eliminated from the investigation. An Oregon man named D.V. Cooper, who had a minor police record, was one of the first persons of interest in the case. He was contacted by Portland police on the off chance that he was the hijacker and he had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long rushing to meet an imminent deadline confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. Other reporters republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources, and the moniker D.B. Cooper became lodged into the public's collective memory. Mm. So everybody remembers him as D.B. Cooper, but right. he never Just, used D.B. Cooper. Right. He signed Dan Cooper when he right. bought the ticket. Right. And this was back in the day when you didn't have to show identification or right. anything to buy or board right. a plane. Right. You just could pay cash and... Just, yeah, get on. Yeah. You know, on on local flights. Right. International, you had to, you know. Right. But, yeah, local flights and stuff, you could just pay cash and get on. Nobody knew who you were. Mm -hmm. A month after the hijacking, 
the FBI distributed lists with the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted significant cash transactions, and to law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. In 1972, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with the man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. So they counterfeited these $20 bills and told oh a Newsweek reporter, like, we we know, we know who Dan Cooper was, oh and we'll give you gosh. an interview if you pay us $30,000. It's pretty stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, stupid, but kind of brilliant well, at the same time. Is, yeah. This was the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, in early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the Post Intelligencer, that's a weird name of it, the Post Intelligencer, made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect. So if you had one of these $20 bills and you turned them in, they were going to give you a reward? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could, if you could produce any of the bills that, right. then you okay. would get a reward. The offer remained in effect until Thanksgiving of 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. And in 1975, Northwest Orient Insurer Global Indemnity Company complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airlines. claim on the ransom money. So Northwest Orient had to pay the ransom money, but they had an insurance company, and then they had to battle the insurance company for four years to get them to pay. Yeah. You know, like you do with insurance companies, because you pay them, but they drag their heels on paying you out. I guess I'm surprised that that's an insurance claim. Oh, yeah. I guess I never really thought about oh, ransom. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they. I'm sure any kind of um, airline or bus company or uh, you know trains or any kind of public transportation has insurance against like hijacking and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. On July eighth, twenty sixteen, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on on issues of higher and more urgent priority, because it had been 45 years at that point. Uh, Local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or the ransom money that may emerge in the future. The 60-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purpose at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. On the FBI website, there is currently a 28-part packet full of evidence gathered over the years, and all the evidence is open to the public to read. 
summarize the tip of that one to say, you know what, we're not going anywhere with this. We probably should focus on other things. Well, I mean, they basically had one person working the case for probably the past 20 years or so, and they finally, in 2016, decided to take that last person off the case. So they're like, we're not even going to have one person that's kind of working the case. Yeah. You know, we're just not even going to worry about it until... Like, basically until somebody brings part of the parachutes that they can... Something. They can identify completely, like, you know, 100% that it's part of the parachutes. Or they find uh, some of the ransom money. I mean, do they... I don't know. I just wonder, like, nothing ever... Nothing was ever found. They never found any trace of anything in the woods and anywhere. I mean, I just... Well, we'll get to that in episode two. Because this is where we're ending episode one, so you'll have to wait until next episode to find out. I we'll feel like I don't, I don't have a lot to contribute right now, just because I mean I know the story. I knew, I knew what he did. I knew he wore, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of. Well, we'll get more into next week what the FBI did have over the past forty, we're almost fifty years now. Twenty twenty now, so yeah. It'll be 50 years next, not this upcoming November, but next November. November of 21 will be... Yeah. That guy's got to be pretty badass. Just be like, all right, this is what I need you to do with the plane. I'm going to jump out of it. All this money. That's crazy. Well, next episode, we'll go over what the FBI did have as far as evidence, what had been found. We'll also go over some suspects, and you can tell me which one you think more closely fits with the criteria, and we'll also discuss whether or not D.B. Cooper even survived the jump. Yeah, but I feel like somebody would have had to have found something at some point if he didn't survive the jump. Tell the people where they can find you. They can't. They can't, yeah. They can't find you. No. She's a mystery wrapped in an enigma, folks. (laughs) Stay tuned for episode two. Bye. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash true crime truckers slash there you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the age of radio syndicate also if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker go to www.patreon.com slash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on Instagram at michael.pritt81. 
I will return in two weeks with another case to present. So until then, stay safe.